dating myself a bit, but not too, too much. But 10 to 15 years ago, there was this show on TV called Extreme Makeover. I don't know if anybody remembers that. So, well, Extreme Makeover was the one, like, where they read, they did all the plastic surgery on people. Nancy loved that show, apparently. So, uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 she, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> I love it. Uh, the truth comes out. So, uh, but actually, there then was a second edition. It was Extreme Maker Makeover Homeowner, or yeah, uh, what was it called? Home Edition. Home Edition. Right. And that's the one I actually do want to focus on. Um, but uh, the whole idea of the show um, was that there's a family um, that had some type of need. Some type, sometimes it was like a, a, a child or a parent had some type of disability. Maybe it was a service member who had come home and uh, had, had become disabled while they were serving overseas. Um, other times it was a family that had just given a lot to the community and they'd given so much that they couldn't take care of their own home. Um, other times it was just a family tragedy, like a parent had died or something like that. And, and all, all, but in all the cases, it was that the home wasn't currently meeting the need of the family. And so what, what ended up happening was um, the host of this show, um, which is Ty Pennington, um, went in with this co-host, and they surprised the family, um, and they redid their house. They drew up these plans, and they just completely redid their house. And it started out, I think, in the first few episodes where they went in and renovated, and then it, like, towards the, as the show progressed, they like, kind of pretty much just tore the whole house down and built a whole house in one week. It was all in one week. So it was like a huge blitz of like 100-plus contractors, construction folks going in, building the house, community members coming to volunteer, and, um, and build a home that would meet the current needs of the family. Of, of the family. And it was like a really, it was a really, really cool show. And at, at the end of the week, or during the week, they would send the family away to some exotic location to have like a, a vacation that they couldn't afford otherwise. And then they'd bring them back at the end of the week, and they'd bring them back in like a stretch limo or a big SUV, um, and the windows were kind of darked out, and they brought them back, and they, they had this big bus, this big bus, right? And the bus would be in front of the house, and they'd bring the family to the back side of the bus so they couldn't see the house. They'd get them out of the vehicle, and they'd stand there, and, sit, and they'd start talking and, about the week and how their vacation was, and they'd say, are you excited to see your house? And they're like, yeah, we're really excited, and they start talking it up. And then Ty Pennington, the host of the show, would say, okay, let's all say it together. And everybody would say, move that bus. Everybody say, move that bus. I don't want to say this. Say it with me. Move that bus. That's right. And, the whole, and there was a crowd of like family and friends behind them. They're all screaming it. And all of a sudden, the bus slowly moves away, and they see their new like mansion that's like in front of them. And they just go crazy. They're jumping up and down. They're screaming. And some of them are falling to the ground because they just can't handle it. And they're crying. And it's amazing. And I feel like we're at the point in the book of Ruth where we're standing behind that bus. And there's been a lot of life thrown at Ruth and Naomi and even Boaz. And... We, as the spectators of the story, are standing with them in just anticipation, just waiting, and just we're, we're, we're ready to scream, move that bus so that we can see how the tragedy in the life of these people has been turned into something great by our God. And, 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 and we're just waiting, and, and, and inside I'm just I'm, I'm screaming, move that bus, Lord. move that bus. 
you know, it's been this journey for, for these people, right? For, for Naomi especially, I mean, there's a famine in her land, and so she and her husband and sons go to this other land, Moab, and, and they live there for a while, and then her husband dies. Tragedy strikes. They have food now, but, but her husband dies. So it's like this high and up and down and up and down. And, and, and then her sons get married at some point, but then her sons die. So up and, and down. And then she's left with nobody to care for her, but, but she hears that back in her, her old home, her old land, her old town, that the famine has passed and there's food again. So there's kind of an up. And so she and her two daughters-in-law start to, to go back, but then she realizes, I can't drag them back there. I'm taking them to nothing. I don't have a husband. They don't have husbands. We don't have anybody to care for us. There's food, but we don't have anybody to watch over us. And so she says to them, just go home. Don't come with, there's nothing for you there. Go home, go back to your moms, your families, get remarried. And one of them does. And then she goes down again. But as much as she discourages Ruth from coming with her, the scripture tells us that Ruth clings to her. And she won't go. She won't leave her. And she says, no matter what, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. She gives this declaration of commitment to her mother-in-law, and, and she goes with her, and things start to look good again. But then they get back to, to Israel, back to their homeland, and all of a sudden they're there, but they have no one to provide for them, and it goes down again, and they're, they're probably beginning to, to, run, to starve. They don't have food. They don't have anybody to work. And so Ruth does what she only thinks she can think to do, and she says, I'm going to go glean. And we have this romanticized picture, we said, of what that is, but that was a very dangerous thing to do. People, men, could have taken advantage of her in that field. She could have been hurt. She could have been robbed. But she says, you know what? I love my mother-in-law, and I want to take care of her, so I'm going to put my life at risk again, and I'm going to go. And she goes and does this, and while she's there, Boaz enters the picture up, right? starts going up on another mountaintop. And, and he takes care of her. He provides for her. He protects her. And then her, her mother-in-law says, I have this idea. I, I kind of have this, this plan. And this guy, Boaz, is one of our kinsmen redeemers. He's, he's a guy who can help us out, who can take care of us, who can redeem our land and redeem you and, and, and take care of me. And you should try to marry her. So last week we talked about in, in Ruth 3 how they come up with this plan and... and, and Ruth goes in and she asks him real humbly, real subtly if he would be willing to marry her, to redeem her. And he says, yes, but there's one who is before me. So I need to go talk with him first. There's a guy who's, who's first in line and, and he has right before I do. So I, I need to talk to him first, but by tomorrow I will have it figured out for you. It's kind of an up and a down and up again. Because we want her to be with Boaz. But there's this other guy. But one way or the other, Boaz is going to take care of her. And that brings us to chapter 4. Um, and this is like the point right now where we're behind the bus waiting to see how God is going to transform this house that doesn't fit, this house that is kind of 
worn out and should just be torn down into something beautiful that will now fit the needs of this, this family on, on extreme makeover. It's, it's like God's taking these lives that were in tatters and, and, and he's transforming them into something great, but we just don't yet know how that's going to work out. And so now we're saying, let's move that bus and let's see what God will do. So let's read. Actually, um, let me do this. Um, that, that thing last week, uh, Ruth kind of goes in, she's with, she, she proposes to Boaz. I, I was thinking about that this week and thinking how crazy that was. And then I, the Lord said, John, you can relate to that. And I said, Lord, how can I relate to that? And he said, well, and he reminded me that 16, 17 years ago, Dottie Kaiser gave me a very similar experience. So I'm married to Dottie Weigel, but 17 years ago she was Dottie Kaiser. And um, I had, um, up until that point in my life, um, been in several relationships. None of them were all that great. Some of them were pretty bad. I made some mistakes. And um, I gave my heart, part pieces of me away that I didn't want to, that I shouldn't have given away um, to somebody that wasn't my wife. And so I had decided before I met Dottie Kaiser that uh, I wasn't going to, to give those parts of me away to anybody else anymore. I wasn't going to give my heart away, especially, um, to anybody who wasn't my wife. And so because of that, I was very protective around women. I just didn't spend time one-on-one with women. Um, I didn't talk about kind of intimate stuff with women. Um, I would spend time in groups. And, but beyond that, not, not so much. Um, and when I met the woman, I decided that when I met the woman that I thought could be a real candidate for me to marry, I was going to pursue her. I was going to go and ask her. I was going to ask her father, all these things. So I had this plan in my head. So Donnie and I knew each other for about a year. We'd become friends. And she, like so many other women, had fallen madly in love with me. Um, <laughs> that uh, that's, We should definitely have her up here to... She, we should definitely have her up here to counterbalance the story, right? So this, this, this may be a little one-sided and not at all correct. But, you know, um, anyway, she, 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 I had started to really be attracted to her, but I didn't want to admit, admit it to myself. And, and she, likewise, had feelings for me, not quite to the degree that I just said. But, um, so anyway, but she couldn't get, we, I wouldn't spend time one-on-one with her. And she really wanted to like get to know me better, just me, not in the group. And so uh, she knew my kind of beliefs on that. So she came up with a very spiritual reason uh, to get me alone. She was going on a mission trip. And when coming back from the mission trip, Messiah College required her to have a debrief partner, somebody that she would meet with to, to kind of tell every nitty-gritty detail of her trip so that when she went to tell other people, have you all been like with somebody who went on a trip and they – Four hours later, after they begin their conversation, they're still telling you, like, just the first half of the trip, and you're like, when is this going to end? So they, they told the students and, and leaders to have a debrief partner, one person who would listen to everything, no matter how long you went, um, so you can get it out of your system so that when you went to other people, you could kind of talk with them. And they'd also help you to process your trip. So she asked me. She said, oh, ask him for a spiritual reason, and then he'll spend time with me alone. And she was right. I was like, okay, I, I, I guess I can do that, you know, because I was the leader of the ministry she was a part of, and... So she came back from her trip, three, three and a half week trip, trip, I think it was, to Zimbabwe. We sat down at a coffee shop in Camp Hill. She took five minutes, five minutes to tell me about her trip. And then she looked at me straight in the eye and she said, what are your intentions with me? 
No joke. Now, that is not an embellishment. That is not an embellishment. What are your intentions with me? And I'm just like, whoa, what's going on here? And she said, I, I think you like me, and you kind of started treating me differently, even when we're in groups of people, and so I just need to know what your intentions are with me. And I was like, look, I like you as a sister in Christ, but that's it. Like, it was a total lie, but I was, like, caught off guard, right? So um, we left there, and about a week later, my sister graduated from college. She was part of our group, or from, yeah, from college, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, they invite, my parents invited Dottie to be part of the graduation party. Dottie came over. We had a good time. I somehow ended up walking her back to her car, and she said, I need to know, what are your intentions with me? <laughs> Number two, and I'm again, oh, my goodness, no, no, no. I said, I just like you as a sister in Christ or whatever. So she gets in her car, goes home. I think like a day or two later, the Lord gets a hold of my heart and is like, John, you're an idiot, right? You're an idiot. Um, you didn't step it up and pursue her, so she's coming to you. And I went back to her with my tail between my legs and said, I, I am mad about you. I am actually the one who's deeply, madly in love with you. Um, I was crazy not to get that earlier. And fortunately, um, she forgave me for that, um, received me, and 16, 17 years later, uh, we're still together. And I, my life has been forever changed. And that, I think, um, is something similar uh, to what Ruth and Boaz experienced. I think Ruth was a woman of character. Boaz was a man of character. They were both humble people. They were, they were respectful. And so she, I, she went to him, but she did it in the most respectful way possible. I don't know that she was trying to, like, take advantage of him or tempt him into something in order to marry. I think she just she didn't want to call him out. She wanted to give him the opportunity to say no like in private, like, and so she, she did in the most respectful way she could, and, and he responded in like kind. She pursued him, but then he said, I am going to take care of you. Fortunately, he didn't do what I did, right? He said, no, I'm, I'll take care of it. By this time tomorrow, it's going to be done. And that brings us to Ruth chapter 4, Boaz is about to take care of it for Ruth. He's about to provide for her one way or the other. And um, I hope that as we've gone through this book, you've just fallen in love with these characters. They're beautiful people, beautiful people who, who loved the Lord and loved each other and, and were people of the highest moral character. I hope that as you see them, you want to emulate them. You, you want to aspire to be like them. What, what they do, you will do. That I hope that is, we're younger or older and, and we're single and, and, and we desire to be with somebody, um, that we will, like Ruth, do it in humility and, and looking towards the other person and, and respecting them as we pursue and, and that we honor each other and, and try not to put ourselves in compromising situations. And I, I just, I, I, I hope also that as we see people in need, we will want to care for them as Boaz has, has cared for Ruth and Naomi, and not just the bare minimum of caring, but going above and beyond to care for people as, as we've been blessed, so to bless others. Like, I, I hope that that has infected your spirit. I hope that it has changed us in some way. I hope that it convicts us and drives us to our knees so that we will be more reliant on the Spirit 
to do what we can't do on our own. So let's move that bus. Ruth chapter 4. Let's see how this shakes out. Meanwhile, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz then took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do it. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one else has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You go ahead. You, you redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech. Kilian and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman may your family be like that of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah so Boaz took Ruth and became uh, she became his wife when he made love to her the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son the woman said to Naomi praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Now get this. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadad. Amminadad, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So, we have this beautiful story that continues its ups and downs, even into chapter 4. Boaz 
decides to go. He sits at the gate. He finds the guardian redeemer, brings him over and says, will you redeem it? And we're all hoping that that guardian redeemer is going to say no. But he says yes. And we go, boom. Another obstacle. Because we all want them to be together. We all want them to work out. But he says yes. And so... Boaz goes on to explain the the situation. And this would have been a pretty normal thing, by the way, sitting at the city gate. I mean, that's kind of what happened. It was the place where everyone went in and out of this town, and you lived in the town if you were a farmer, but then you went out of town to farm your, your land. So in the town with the wall was safe. Outside of the town was not so safe. So you farmed out there, but you stayed overnight in town. So you sit by the gate because everybody comes in and out, in and out. Merchants come in and out to sell things. Farmers come in and out to farm their land. It's just a place people go. So if you wanted to catch somebody, this is the place to do it. As well, this is a place where legal transactions often took place. So it was just normal that Boaz would have gone there. He went there. He sat there. He found the guy coming out. He he tells him what's going on. The guy says, yes, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz goes and says, but you have to take Ruth as well. You have to take Ruth as well. And when he says, when he hears that, he says that he can't do it. He can't do it. And, and I, I, I think probably what's happening in the story, like if we were to like put this into Hollywood and they made a movie about it, it would be like, the guy says, yes, I'll redeem it. Bo says, but you have to take Ruth as well. And then there's like this long dramatic pause, right? And they just, they just kind of drag it out. So you're like, what is going to happen? What is going to happen? And the guy says, no, I can't. And the guy's not like a jerk or anything, probably. Like he's, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think he's like, oh, Ruth, I don't like her. She's not pretty. Or, or, or I, I'm just selfish and I want to keep everything for me. I think he's probably, it's just a reality. He's already married, maybe. And he doesn't want to take another wife. He can't take another wife. Um, maybe... Yeah. His wife has died, and his kid, he has to provide for his kids. And if he does that, if he takes one Ruth, he won't be able to provide for them like he needs to. Like there's probably some, there, I like to think there's probably some noble reason. It doesn't say this. But I, I, we don't have any indication to think otherwise. It, it, but he says, no, I, I won't do it. And Boaz steps up, and he says, then I will. And we're all like, Yes! That's what we wanted. That's what we've been waiting for. It's going to work out. Boaz takes these two, Naomi and Ruth, and, and now he's committed to care for them. You know, all throughout life, I think um, we're all given situations that lack color and clarity. This is what was going on, I think, for the most of the book of Ruth. It, it's, it's now culminated. They, they get married. They have a, they have a son. And... <laughs> And not just any son. This son goes on to have a son named Jesse. And that, that, that grandson goes on to, to have a, a son named David. And that David is, is the king of Israel. The greatest king of Israel ever. It's like this beautiful story of redemption, of God's providence. That when things looked like they were going nowhere, when it was just destitute and totally irredeemable, God picks it up out of the ash heap and he makes it into the greatest thing ever. And I think our, all of our lives are kind of like that to a certain degree. There, there are times when they're on this, this heap and they, they look like they're going to amount to nothing. And, and, 
they're like this this outline they, they, of like a children's coloring book. Like you, we see kind of the, the sum of the story, but it lacks color and it lacks clarity, and it just doesn't look beautiful as just an, an outline, and sometimes it just doesn't look good at all as the outline. The edges of that coloring page, I think, are like the, the edges of our life and what God desires to do with it. And the color that is put into it kind of makes it beautiful. It makes it good. Or, on the flip side, it makes it ugly and tragic. And I think I think that we are like the two-year-old that's been given the coloring page and we're sitting before it with a box full of crayons that has tens or hundreds or thousands or even millions of different combinations of color that can be put on that coloring page. And we begin to color it ourselves, attempting the futile task of using those crayons to create those millions of different combinations to make it look beautiful, but at the age of one or two, we are totally incapable of doing that. And so what ends up happening is we start just scribbling on the page and using colors that don't coordinate or match or that even clash. And we don't stay in the lines. We go outside of the lines. And, and in the end, we have this, this coloring page that's kind of completed and we hand it to our parents and our parents are like, oh, that's cute, thinking in our mind, I hope they get a lot better than this, right? Because it's really not cute. If you gave it to anybody else, you gave it to Mickey, you gave it to Luke, or you gave it, I'm not just calling Mickey out, you gave it to anybody, like, they'd be like, oh, this isn't good at all. This is actually pretty horrible. This is tragic. It never, it never works. But I think the other choice that we have is to hand the crayons to a parent or to an adult or to an artist and say, could you do this for me? And when in the hands of the right person that outline can become something marvelous and beautiful. And I think spiritually and or in reality in life, we can do the same with our lives. We can try to figure them out. We can try to navigate them. And when we do, the color gets way outside of the lines. And the colors clash. They don't coordinate. And it's a big mess. That when you go to your parents, they might say, oh, yeah, you did okay. But you go to any other objective party and they say, you made a mess of your life. Or, or we can hand the canvas of our life to God. Say, I can't do this. But I know you can. I think similar thing happens when we get in the deserts of life. And what we start doing is we start to try to interpret the events on our own. And when we're in this isolated moment and we're trying to interpret these events that are, seem terribly tragic and, and really are terribly tragic, but we only have this isolated moment in time from which to judge them, and we don't have the, the, the vantage point of eternity. Our perspective is very limited, and because of it, oftentimes we aren't able to judge the situation in its fullness or in, in the greater timeline, and because of that, we misread the situation. 
and we look at it as just like a, a complete loss. I think, I think part of the message of, of, of Ruth is, is to say that we can't do that. And what we have to do is when we're in the midst of a tragic separation, uh, situation, our, our perspective is everything. If we're just looking down at what currently is, at the walls crumbling down, we think this is all lost. Nothing good could ever come of this. It's a total failure. Just, you know, just take me. Take my life. Just get me out of here, Lord. But if our perspective is different, if rather than relying on ourselves to interpret the situation and we look to Him to give us what we need to, to not just stand in it, but to, to exist through it and, and to, to see it in, in, in as much of the context of, community, of eternity as possible, if we allow Him to change our perspective, we see things differently. We say, well, this, may be, this is tragic and this is hard and this does hurt and I don't want to be here, but I realize that this isn't everything. That there is so much more. And in that moment, rather than despairing and giving up, we have hope. Tim closed out last week and basically said that part of the key to the book of Ruth is our perspective. And I think that's so true. I think that's so key to getting this, this story. If, 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 we have, if we allow God to change our perspective and and see it more like he sees it, we, we see that even the most desperate and harmful and hurtful situations, in those we can have hope and they, because they can be redeemed. They're not the end. And that perhaps, maybe, just maybe, God is going to use that for something beautiful and good and great because that's just how he works. The worst situations in life don't have to stay the worst, but they can re- be redeemed literally into the best. This Moabite pagan widow is brought by her widowed mother-in-law to a land that is not her own, and she ends up becoming was it the great-grandmother of King David? Who saw that coming? I mean, we read this oftentimes from the 21st century perspective where we, we know the beginning and the end, but if you're just in the beginning and you don't know the end, you did not see that coming. What you saw coming was starvation and death. The other day, I took, I'm just welling up because this is like so true. Like, this is not just in biblical times. This is today. This is today. Like in the big and the small. The other day, the, I took the girls to Hershey Park. And um, we, we drove there. It was one of those really hot, really humid days. Like 92, 95% humidity, like 90s. Like it was just really warm, terribly uncomfortable. And we went in my car, which is worth like literally $100. We took it to do a trade-in value on it one time, and they said, literally, we can give you $100 for this car. So, like, it's worth nothing. Like, that was, like, with a full tank of gas, right? So, like, it's worth, like, nothing. And so we get there, and I, you know, the sun is beating down. There's not a cloud in the sky to block it. It's just so hot. It's so humid. So I say to the girls, we're just going to leave the windows down 
because maybe somebody will steal the car. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I didn't say that. But I, I said we're going to leave the windows down because it'll just make it more comfortable when we come out from the park. If we keep those windows up, it's going to be humid in here. It's going to be hot in here. And it's just going to be so uncomfortable. So we're just going to leave them down. And Kate looks at me and she said, no, Dad, we can't do that. And I said, why? She said, because I have my library book in here. And I said, that doesn't matter. Nobody's going to steal your library. Yes, they're going to steal my library book. I said, nobody's going to steal your library book. Just put it under the seat or we'll put it in the trunk. We're not putting the windows up. She said, Dad, we are not leaving those windows down. And so finally, I, and I was like really frustrated with her. Like I was uh, fine. I really I grumbled. I literally grumbled. I put the windows up. She was like slow to get out of the car. I closed my car door and I literally walked Without her, she hadn't even fully gotten out of the car. I just started walking towards the gate because I just didn't want to deal with her. I was, like, so frustrated. And um, she closed her door. I'm walking ahead of them, grumpy, all the way into the park. We decide to go and get lunch and watch a show. And we're sitting under this um, kind of pavilion thing watching this country show. And it's, like, all the sides are exposed to the outside. And I'm eating, and the musicians are singing, and I start to smell rain. You ever smell rain? You know, like, when it's really raining, you start to smell it. And it started to get really cool. And I was like, that's weird. I wonder if there's like a leak in here or something. And I started, I put my food down, I started looking around, and sure enough, I looked outside, and it was raining buckets, just buckets and buckets and buckets of rain. And I immediately thought to myself, I am so glad Kate's book was in that car. Because while my car is only worth $100, there's not much lower you can go, right? I would have had a very wet, uncomfortable ride home. And, um, you know, I think, I think the Lord and life are a lot like that. I think that's kind of the book of Ruth, right? Like, at the very beginning, it looked like nothing was going to go her way, and she, she could have very easily got bent out of shape and upset and been resentful and just cut and run and gone back with her, her parents and gotten remarried, and nobody would have blamed her for it, but she didn't. Instead, because of the perspective she allowed the Lord to give her, she saw things differently. And so she stayed with her mother-in-law and went to this land that was not her own, to a people that were not her own, and she adopted and started believing in a God that was not her own. And as a result, things kind of got worse for a while. And then they got better, and then they kind of got worse, and then they got better again. But all the way through, her perspective kind of dictated um, her, the reality she was able to see. God is the same no matter what our perspective is. If we're grumpy and grumbly like I was going into the park because nothing seems to go our way and life is just terrible, that doesn't change God. He never changes. But it does change our ability to see what is really happening. And that's my hope for us. Like, I, like, this is what I pray for, for y'all, like, every week. This is what I'm praying for, is that God softens our hearts in such a way that we will release control of our lives, of our perspectives, so that he can give us his, so that when no matter how badly things go, no matter how tough things are, like we're able to have perspective and we're able to receive blessing even in the tragedy of life, 
not because we're not hurting, but because we have the right perspective. We have his perspective. And, and, and we experience great blessing. And, and something really wonderful happens in, in those moments. One, you, your life is full of joy regardless of your situation. Because God doesn't change. He's able to give you joy even in tragic situations. And that is awesome. But two, other people who are far from the Lord see that and it is totally different than anything they've ever seen before. And your life becomes for them a window into the eternal. And that's amazing. Your tragedy is used for greatness. Just like Ruth's. Just like Jesus is. See, this storyline is not isolated to Ruth and Boaz. This storyline happens all throughout Scripture. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Moses. Moses comes and he gets the people out of Egypt and then they get to the sea and he's standing there with a body of water in front of him and an army coming behind. And it looks like everything is about to fail. And then because of perspective, because of faith, that sea parts and they walk through. We see this all through. We see it with the um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We see it with others. We see it with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is healing people. He's teaching. He's changing lives. He's changing families. And He looks to be like the most powerful person in the entire world. And then He's crucified. And He dies. That didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense. But then three days later, God redeems the situation. And not, Jesus, not just Jesus' situation. He redeems ours as He comes back from the dead and then ascends into heaven. Today, I'm so glad we get to celebrate. It's the first Sunday. Every first Sunday, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm so glad that Ruth 4 happened on the first Sunday when we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because in a way, Ruth's story is this story. God is able to take the worst situation and make it into the greatest thing because of His providence. Because He is all-powerful but desires to use all that power in a benevolent way for the good of his people. And um, he used all his power to send his son to suffer and die on a cross and be separated from him and to send him to hell and to come back from the dead because he loves you. Because he wants you to know that there is no extreme he would not go to for you. And if if we're not a believer, we've become incredible we, we become incredibly guilt stricken over that. But when we come to know Jesus, we become incredibly overwhelmed with love and gratefulness for what he has done. And in response to that, there's nothing that we want to hold back 
We don't give to him because we hope to get from him. We give to him in response to the great love he has shown us. And that's what we're doing today. He told us that every time we meet, we should take some bread and we should take the cup. Ours is juice. The Last Supper, his was wine, but he passed bread around. They took it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then after that, he took a cup and he passed it around to his disciples at the Last Supper and he said, drink from this for this is my blood which was poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he He tells us that every time we meet, every time we're together, every time we have the opportunity that we should do this in order to remember Him. Remember that He loves us. To remember that He's able to redeem. To remember there's nothing that He wouldn't do for us. So today we're going to celebrate Him. We're going to take this, but not with guilt. Don't, Don't come up here feeling guilty. Your guilt has been taken away. Come up here and take this with a great deal of joy hope because of what Christ has lovingly and willingly done for you. Um, So maybe I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray for us. And as we pray, I just encourage you, I'm going to leave just a brief moment in there for you to confess any sin that you need to confess to the Lord. Because we want to be right with Him before we come up here and do that. And then I'll I'll, I'll close our prayer. And our um, servers, uh, Jackie and Chad, will come forward. They're going to serve you this morning. And then you'll come down the center aisle. And then you'll take the bread and and the cup and you can go back to your seat by one of the side aisles. You can stay up front and pray if you'd like. Um, That's perfectly fine. Um, um, Or pray in your seat. Um, You can take it immediately as you're walking back. You can take it back there and sit there a moment and then take them. You don't have to wait for everybody. Um, But however you do it, let's just do it as an act of worship, celebrating and recognizing the greatness of our God. So let's let's, let's pray and then we'll celebrate. Father... um, We do thank you this morning um, for loving us enough um, (laughs) to um, sacrificially redeem our situation. We thank you that you're provident. Um, We thank you that you're in control of all things. We thank you that you're all-powerful and that you're (laughs) all-knowing. That that fact that you're all-knowing means that you know everything that we've thought, that we've said, that we've done, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, before we come up and take the bread and the juice, so we, we remember your body and blood, we remember the sacrifice that you've done and celebrate you, worship you, honor you for, for you saving us, we just want to take a brief moment to confess some of our sin because while 